Hi everybody and welcome to For Fat's Sake, the ferret's podcast about misinformation and fact checking. I am your host, Ali Bryan, and with me, across the table in person, for the first time since this podcast started, is the arson banger of the airwaves, Paul Dobson. How are you, Paul? I'm very well, Ali. It's good to look directly into your eyes as you yeah. make up those particular jokes on the spot uh, yeah. but yeah it's been good to be here in person and use the podcasting booth which has been lying dormant in this office for nearly a year now um, <laughs> while we organize ourselves to use it so. yeah it's wonderful and i think the rapport is going to be even more electric now that's that it. we're in a room uh, that's how we are described i believe yes <laughs> yeah the electric eels of podcasting yeah so on this week's podcast what have we got for them so we're speaking to Olivia Soar from the Argentinian fact-checking outlet Chequeado about the rise of a interestingly quiffured outsider in their presidential race, that's uh, Javier Millet. We are also looking at the Scottish government's WhatsApp scandal and on Paul's Curiosity Corner we're discussing whether we should be relying on your favourite tipple to keep you warm in the evening. Excellent. All bases covered then. But let's start off with Olivia and the interview about Javier Millet. I am Olivia Thor. I am Director of Impact and New Initiatives at Chiquedo, which is a fact-checking organisation based in Argentina. So Olivia, for those in the UK who might not be aware, could you explain just first of all who Javier Malay is and how he has come to prominence in the last year or so? Javier Malay is one of the candidates for the election. Now we are going to, into the second round, so we have two candidates. There's Sergio Massa from the Peronism, which is a traditional party here in Argentina, and we have Javier Malay somewhat of an outsider that has come into scene. He's an economist. He worked most of his life in private companies and sort of a consultant on economic issues. And then in 2016-17, he started being better known by the wider public because he started going to television sets and kind of presenting his ideas. He's very emphatic when he talks, so it worked very well on, on television. And then he started getting more and more into politics, especially when the pandemic started, he started making more kind of political statements. And in 2021, he was elected um, representative in the Congress. Uh, so now he's a congressman and he presented himself to the national election this year in 2023. So c- could you give us a sense of like what his views are and what the platform he's standing on is? He presents himself as an anarcho-capitalist. So basically, he's against the state or having a big state or having the state intervene in, in many aspects. And one of his main ideas and main um, proposals in this campaign has been to eliminate the central bank in Argentina and to eliminate the peso, which is the national currency, and use the dollar as a currency. And just as context, Argentina does have a very big problem with inflation, and we have had Mm. for several years now. So the idea of relying on another another currency that would allow you to keep the value of your money 
might be appealing for, for many people, just to explain where this idea of the dollar comes from. And then in other subjects, most of the views he has are just about either eliminating the state from that function or cutting it back significantly. So like he, one of the more polemic views he's presented is about organs. And so the, yeah. he says there mm -hmm. should be a marketplace for organs and maybe that it could be um, sold and bought in a market. He says he now he's also changed a lot on his proposals and his views as we've gone through the campaign. So in yeah. some cases, they started being a bit more radical than they are right now. And also there are different spokespersons for him campaign. So it depends a bit who you listen to. But so he started saying that he didn't want any more public schools. Then he said, well, it would actually be a system with vouchers where families could choose what public school to go to. So it's changed a bit in the in the campaign. But basically his ideas is that the state should have as little intervention as possible, not invest in infrastructure, not have a main role in education or in the economic system. Yeah, so as you say, pretty radical views um, uh, from a sort of anarcho-capitalist or libertarian perspective. So is he appealing to anti-establishment voters? Um, and does that outsider status help him do that? I think kind of the context in Argentina helps to understand a bit why he's been so successful. So I said we've had problems with inflation for some years now, starting at least in 2006, 2007, um, and it's got worse in the last two, three years. But also at a, at a more broad economic level, Argentina has been stagnating for the last 10, 12 years. So we haven't had kind of significant growth in a long time. And there's a lot of economical problems at a macro level. So scarcity of dollars to be able to import certain things and this kind of goes chronically from one government to the next and the, the party that's governed most of the the last 20 years has been the Peronism but we also had four years of a more kind of center-right government from 2015 to 2019 mm -hmm. and that economically didn't work out that well either there wasn't a big recovery in the economy during those years either mm -hmm. even though there were some reforms done so there is sort of a disenchantment with the traditional parties and with what they've been doing especially on the economical sphere and that might mean that Javier Millet's ideas that are much more radical might be more appealing in a way of saying kind of if anything if if the traditional recipes haven't worked maybe we can try with something new and see if this will work this time. Yeah, it's interesting though because, it, like, obviously not to compare. Like, there's a, been a, a rash of like populist leaders across the world, effectively. But some of these ideas, like we're talking about or organ harvesting and all this sort of stuff, that's not what I would consider to be like traditional populism, <laughs> um, no. in the way that it's been. Do you know what I mean? That that's quite. These are quite um, radical and quite unusual. Like the kind of extreme form of libertarianism is quite an unusual and like not all that popular position yeah and i think if you look at polls the kind of more radical ideas are not necessarily the most popular ideas that javier right, Millet has right. been proposing so if the polls are to be followed on this i don't think people who vote him will be voting him because his ideas on on organs and having a marketplace for organs but more for dollarizing the economy and kind of yeah. taking the state out of certain mm -hmm. areas and yeah, taking back the, the cutting the state out of certain areas more than the more extreme ideas that he's presented. Right.
Although you could also say that eliminating the central bank is quite extreme in itself, but it's yeah. but it's less. I mean, it's a more technical proposal and less easy to maybe kind of gather what it actually would mean for the yeah. economy of the country. So obviously, this is a fact-checking sort of misinformation-led podcast. So I'm interested to know if there are any examples of what sort of disinformation he's been employing as part of his campaign. So. There's a lot of disinformation going around. Uh, mm-hmm. We heard kind of we we've all we always have certain levels of disinformation going around, even when there's not an electoral period. Of course, when elections yeah. are coming up, there's more interest from people, and disinformers will take advantage of that and generate more disinformation and spread it around. So we start seeing disinformation grow around the elections for each one of these rounds. But what's happened since the second round, which was in October, was a big growth in the amount of disinformation that's circulating. And we can't say that this is kind of Millet's campaign doing organically. We do know that some of the people who are close to him have shared disinformation, and he Mm -hmm. himself has shared disinformation, for example, on his Twitter, on his ex account. Um, Mm -hmm. But we can't say that they're doing it kind of organically from the campaign. What we do know is that after the the first round, there has been a, a big growth in the disinformation one that's especially worrying for us on kind of suspicions of fraud or saying that there was a fraud that was committed during the elections. And they use different complexities of the electoral system to say that this is proof of fraud. And so, as we know, elections are a very complicated process that involve yeah. millions of people, not yeah. just going to vote, but kind of authorities that are there, people in the polls. Um, and there's always mistakes. And there sometimes are irregularities. The Argentine system, as most, has kind of different checks to make sure that those irregularities cannot turn into a massive fraud or a systematic fraud that will yeah. benefit one of the candidates. But what this information tends to do in this case is, is takes those complexities without explaining the whole context and all the checks that there are so that that will not become a fraud and just say, oh, here, there's a mistake and this is proof that there is a massive fraud going around. And we've seen a big growth of that kind of disinformation since the first round and what we're very worried about is that this will just keep growing until the the second round in november yeah that's interesting i think that the fraud angle is really interesting one because obviously we've seen that across different uh populations obviously we saw it with trump and then we saw it with bolsonaro um i'm interested again in in some of the, the things that uh, when we were researching this, that he he's been mentioning so there's stuff like like the obviously there's things like fraud angle. There's the suspicion of COVID nineteen vaccines. There's talking about stuff like cultural Marxism, which is a far right conspiracy theory. There's, um, you know, um, skepticism of climate change. These are all quite universal things. So I'm sort of wondering, like, are like, what do you think? Do you think populist leaders are sort of learning off each other? Like, oh, this works here. It could work here. It could work here. Yeah, and, and I think it's quite clear. I mean, for example, Eduardo Bolsonaro, who's the, one of the sons of uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the ex-president from Brazil, actually came to Argentina to the, mm. to Millet's banker to celebrate after the first round. So there's quite a clear connection um, that there are similar strategies. We cannot prove that they are sharing this information strategies no. necessarily, but it does seem to be kind of very similar communication campaigns. Um, and for example, on the... On these ideas of climate denialism and others, um, Millet gave an interview with Tucker Carlson, where he kind of yeah. very clearly explains this thought that 
there is this cultural Marxism that says that there is climate change, and this is because it's a way for them to control people, uh, and that this is also related to abortion rights, for example. So kind of he puts yeah. all that together in, in the same umbrella in a very similar way than it, that it's done by, by leaders in, in other countries. I just want to say that Millet has also been target of this information. So he, does, yeah. he has shared this information, for example, saying that climate change is not uh, a human-created effect or that it's not created by humans. But he's also being target of this information. There's um, a lot of speculation about his mental health, for example. And there, has, there have been disinformations mm -hmm. where they share yeah. supposed um, clinical history where it says that he has certain uh, mental health illness, which are false. And also there's a lot of speculation about his relationship with his sister because it's very close. And so they're kind of false videos of him kissing a woman and saying, oh, he's kissing his yeah. sister and this kind of disinformation. So there have been a lot of disinformation that might benefit him in the campaign, but there also has been disinformation that targets him and we've also been practicing that. So Ali, last week you explained the ongoing scandal with the Scottish government's COVID WhatsApps, which has been rumbling over the last week or so. I thought we could recap that today on the pod as it is a story which looks like it will continue on into the future. So first of all, what is the COVID inquiry and why is it asking Scottish ministers to turn over their WhatsApps? There's actually two COVID inquiries going on at the same time um, that were set up to look at the government responses to the pandemic and obviously the impact of uh, the pandemic itself. There's one in the UK, a UK-wide um, inquiry that's taking place, but there's also one that's been set up by the Scottish government that looks specifically at the Scottish government's uh, response. Yeah. Both those things are kind of cross-cutting for the Scottish government. The Scottish mm -hmm. government has to give um, evidence to both the UK inquiries and the Scottish government inquiry. Uh, sorry, the Scottish inquiry. Um, so basically, they asked for messages of all sorts from uh, Scottish government ministers and officials, um, including WhatsApps. They wanted to have a look at the sort of thinking behind decision making. Yeah. We've seen over recent weeks that's come out of the UK WhatsApp inquiry. It seems like in the UK, at least, uh, Westminster, a lot of decision making and uh, analysis and stuff around policy was being made kind of informally in WhatsApp groups and conversations. They're, they've asked the Scottish government to hand over whatsapp messages as well as the kind of official decision making stuff yeah and i'm sure many of our listeners are already aware of this with the stories that have been sort of trickling out over the last couple of weeks but have ministers handed over those messages so yeah the the, 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 the whole kind of background of this is quite a, a little bit sort of murky or complicated um the one of the the, the council for the, the the uk inquiry um said that they asked they kind of asked the scottish government for whatsapps and then they were basically saying that they didn't really receive quite a lot of stuff that they wanted. This is a few, okay. this is a few weeks ago. He told the inquiry a few weeks ago, um, a clear theme of the overall response received and via the Scottish government is that although such messaging systems, that's WhatsApp, were used in the pandemic response, including by some key decision makers, generally very few messages appear to have been retained. Um, so yeah, that was the kind of how the kind of scandal occurred. And there were reports that come out um, in various media that uh, people like, the former First Minister Nicola Sturgeon hadn't retained her WhatsApp messages and also the uh, Scottish Government's clinical director, who you will have seen on TV a lot, yeah. uh, Jason Leach. Yeah. Um, Sturgeon <laughs> refused to confirm whether her message has been deleted, but then it all gets a little bit complicated when we go into the, 
the policies and systems that the Scottish government had in place. Yeah, so basically their defence was that there was a policy in place at that time to delete messages, is that right? Um, so could you just explain that policy and how that was used during the pandemic? The Scottish government, like um, the UK government, have records management policies, which is basically like policy that's in place to make sure that decisions and why they're taken is noted down and policy papers and emails and stuff like that are recorded rather than just deleted in order to keep things sort of transparent. There's also a mobile messaging guidance, which is part of the Scottish government's records management policy, which was introduced in 2021, the end of 2021, which basically states that if you're using things like WhatsApp and other mobile messaging services, it doesn't change your responsibility to maintain complete and comprehensive records of key decisions and conversations. Um, but then it also says that after you've basically submitted like records of what you've been talking about, then you can delete messages for mm. security reasons and also so that they don't have like reams of information just sitting there. But essentially the, the policy was that you needed to uh, transcribe important points into an email or a document that then saved into the Scottish government's electronic records keeping system. Uh, this is what they should have done monthly. And then after you've done that, you should uh, delete it. But obviously there's a problem there that some people have um, been aware of that like... Who decides that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that sort of raises two questions, as you say. Firstly, about who decides what is important and what needs to be logged. Yeah. But also about whether that guidance, that policy was actually followed by those officials. So particularly Nicola Sturgeon and Jason Leach. So do we know anything about whether they submitted important information on their whatsapps and that becomes the issue doesn't it because yeah. it, there's not really any way of telling if the policy is you decide what you put in there's also the factor which we should add in that the covid inquiry sent do not destroy notices to witnesses last year it's basically a letter which says do not destroy important documentation or messages or anything because we're gonna it's gonna be part of this inquiry another question which has been raised is how you know at what point did the scottish government or ministers and officials know there was going to be an inquiry because they would have been aware at that point that deleting messages would be a bad idea mm-hmm. and would potentially be um, misleading and even, you know, potentially illegal. And it was in, in May 2020 that Nicola Sturgeon basically said that there would be a public inquiry. The Scottish inquiry was officially announced in 2021. So that begs a question, certainly. Yeah, so when did the Do Not Destroy order get put out? Was that 2022? 2022, yeah. Right, okay. So they might have been able to anticipate that that order would be put in place, but it wasn't actually in place until 2022. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Welcome to Paul's Curiosity Corner, the section of this podcast where we discuss enduring myths and oddities uh, that we feel like fact-checking, essentially. Yeah. It's not, yeah, it's not very scientific, the method for choosing no. topics for this segment at all. No, I like you to sort of imagine that you've walked into an old, a yieldy yes. shop and Paul has loomed over you like some yeah. sort of old shopkeeper and giving you sort of some riddles and myths and then because it's me i've come in just to be like no that doesn't that's not yeah. right that's wrong yeah, yeah. and in that spirit <laughs> yeah we're obviously descending into the depths of winter just now but on today's paul's curiosity corner we're going to question whether having a nip of our favorite alcoholic beverage is a good way to stave off the cold yeah so first of all ali what is your drink of choice to bring you a bit of cheer on a freezing glaswegian evening well I was in exactly that situation a few days ago right. on uh, fireworks night, and uh, I've now got a new favourite. 
So basically, it was a uh, hot chocolate with whiskey, a bit of Bailey's, and Cointreau. Have you named that? No, I haven't named it okay. yet. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it had a sort of back of the booze cupboard feel to it. Certainly. And yeah. it was a bit sort of deadly. Yes. And first of all, does, does drinking actually warm us up? Well, if there's no hot chocolate involved, not really. Um, there's a sort of illusion of warmth that is created. You know, the kind of beer blanket that people talk about. Yeah. Um, but it's not really to do with your, like, your temperature rising or you being warmed up. It's more because your blood vessels widen on the skin. Right, so that's the sensation of warmth you're feeling when you drink. Yeah, essentially. So when you drink alcohol, your blood vessels in your skin, like they dilate, which mm-hmm. moves blood from the middle of your body to the edge of your body. So you're not actually heating up. You're just sort of moving the... Right, okay, your resources around. You're moving resources around <laughs> okay. in your body, exactly, from the middle to the periphery. Um, our bodies maintain a core temperature, and basically the heat that's that your body that kind of keeps you alive is caused by your metabolism which is all these kind of chemical reactions that are conti- continuously going on your skin there are these receptors which detect temperature change so when your blood redistributes when you've uh, imbibed some alcohol um that sends messages to your brain that says like it's hot okay and so your body starts yeah. to you know react accordingly right so i mean i know a lot of people who will rely on yeah, a couple of beers or a couple of wines to stay warm yeah. in the winter. Is that sort of potentially dangerous in that case if, you, if you're if you getting the sensation of warmth but not the actual um, benefits yeah. of, of insulating yourself? Yeah, well, essentially, yeah. You know, if your body can't properly detect the cold, if it's thinking it's warm when it's not warm, then you might be more likely to get kind of frostbite or hypothermia because you won't have that sensation of cold which will then make you react and you know put a jacket on or go inside or whatever. Um and then if you kind of combine that with the impact on your decision making that drinking can have, then you might be more inclined to think, okay, I can just sort of curl up in this doorway or I can just, you know, like walk home in a t-shirt. I mean, there's always horrible examples of, you know, people who have walked 10 miles home and like got hypothermia and all that sort of stuff. So basically, yeah, when your body thinks that it's hot when it's not, it'll start to do things like cool your body down as well. So you might like start to sweat and that will lower your body temperature further into dangerous territory. That's all we've got time for for this week's episode of For Fact's Sake. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, thanks to Olivia for coming on and uh, telling us all about uh, the kind of cult of Javier Millet. Um, watch out for their runoff election, November the 19th. Uh, that will find out who is actually successful. So, Paul, if people want to get in touch with us uh, for any suggestions for Paul's Curiosity Corner, fact checks we should talk about, guests, any other generalized or non-generalized abuse, what should they do? Uh, they can contact us, obviously, via all the normal social media means. So, at Ferret Scott on X slash Twitter. We are just the Ferret on Facebook and LinkedIn. And we also have our new community forum, community.theferret.scott, which is full of interactive content like polls and other things of that sort, which helps us keep in contact with our members Uh, it would also be massively valuable if you enjoyed this podcast if you can rank it five stars wherever you listen yeah just helps us to spread the word and makes us look good basically it does which is the main the main point of this entire show so yeah if you do like the podcast uh be sure to share it with your friends anybody who's interested in misinformation fake news fact checking or just two people dicking around in a non-professional fashion That's all we've got time for, I think.
Cheers. Bye. Bye.